Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. A sound foreign policy is crucial to the success and safety of any country, and governments are grappling with different ideals and agendas to maintain relationships in the current changing global environment. Joining me to discuss Australia's foreign policy and reflect on its interactions with Asia is Alan Gingell. He's an adjunct professor of public policy at the Australian National University, and he's the director of the Crawford Australia Leadership Forum. He has an extensive background in international policymaking and analysis, and amongst his previous job titles, he was foreign policy advisor in the office of then Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating. Thank you for joining me, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here, Matt. That was a very truncated version of your extensive resume. How well did I do there? Uh, well, you did pretty well considering that my uh, career can be described either as um, extensive or eccentric, uh, <laughs> depending on which way you look at it. But uh, I've uh, operated in most of the bits of the Australian government which deal with the external uh, world and uh, also partly outside it in, uh, in think tanks and uh, universities. So I've looked at it from all directions. Mm. You're on the podcast today to look at it from from a few different directions, but if you had to describe Australians' foreign policy in the form of emoji, which emoji would you use at the moment? I th- <laughs> I don't know what you call the one with a sort of um, with a straight mouth. It's not a not a smiley face one at the uh, at the moment, but the eyebrows are raised because I don't think we quite know what's about to happen to us. <laughs> So if I could take you back then uh, to the mid-90s and we could have a bit of a reflective look then at Australian foreign policy, how did Asia look from an Australian point of view compared to, to how it does today? I think it looked very different because it was all heading in one direction. A number of things had happened. The Cold War had ended and that made possible a number of uh, Uh, developments in Asia, like the expansion of uh, ASEAN and China's full entry into the uh, world economy. Uh, So everyone was sort of marching in one direction. There were the stories of the the Asian Mm. tigers, uh, for example. Uh, China, after Tiananmen Square, had its uh, head down and deeply focused on Development, So you're beginning to see the emergence of the global value chains which, uh, which led to the phenomenon of factory China. Things which had not been possible to do until then, like solving the uh, problems of Cambodia or establishing an organisation like APEC were mm. suddenly possible. Mm-hmm. And has Australia changed its thinking substantially since about that time? Oh, well, Asia has changed substantially since that time, and therefore Australia has had to uh, change its uh, its thinking. The uh, region has become much more complicated. Mm. China has uh, has grown uh, hugely and is beginning to exercise political as well as and strategic as well as uh, economic influence in the region, but other parts of Asia, like India, Mm. have uh, suddenly uh, become much more important actors on the international scene. Security has become a larger issue as we begin to to see the consequences of greater strategic competition between China and the United States. Now, that 
wasn't the case in the mid 1990s, of course. But as China has grown, like any great power, mm. uh, it wants to uh, to exert its influence uh, more than it uh, has, and we're seeing that now. So since the, the Keating ministry, we've had many different policies and leadership styles come into play and very different relationships with Asian states. So as an observer of Australian foreign policy, whose leadership style do you think has been the most effective when dealing with Asia? Look, I think any leadership style can be effective. It's the way you use it. We've had you know, enormously energetic figures like Gareth Evans who've, mm. uh, or Kevin Rudd who've plunged uh, right into things. We've had ministers who've stepped back a bit like um, Alexander Downer. Anything can work. The question is whether the ministers have understood the environment they're operating, have understood Asian cultures and so on. A particular problem for Australian ministers generally, I think, is um, their level of discomfort with silence. One of the things that I admired about Keating when I first started working for him, and this was a surprise to me given his reputation, was his ability to sit silently Mm. and wait for pauses in conversations to be filled by others. Australians have to learn how to how to deal with their with their Asian counterparts, but you can do it from um, a number of different perspectives. Do you think that that's a considerable benefit when dealing with with other states? Do you a quality like being able to to sit and wait silently? I think it's hugely important in a, in a many different environments, but particularly when dealing with Asia. China is Australia's biggest trade partner and it's an emerging world power at the moment. So it makes for a very crucial and complex relationship and it's a priority of our national agenda, I think. So what's the best way to manage a relationship like that and how do you think it will evolve? I think the most important thing in managing the relationship with uh, China is to have a very clear idea of what our interests are and what we want to get from the relationship to put those points clearly to the Chinese. It has never seemed to me a particularly difficult problem to deal with uh, to deal with China. You sometimes hear people overly, I think, complicating the relationship. Uh, clarity in what you want from it, clarity in what we put to uh, China, and the understanding that we're dealing with two different systems. There are systemic differences which we have to uh, take into account. So as John Howard used to say, uh, raising the issues which we have with the Chinese privately before going public with them. Has that been something that's been hugely effective? I think engaging China in regional architecture like APEC that was uh, key to doing that, um, talking to them behind the scenes, understanding what their interests are, making a case for how their interests could be could be furthered by engaging in these uh, developments. I think Australia's uh, work with the, with China in getting it into the WTO mm. was another uh, example of that. Uh, we've had problems like 
Chinese asylum seekers coming to Australia and uh, dealing directly with, uh, with China about ways of addressing those uh, problems uh, and uh, repatriating people mm. have been some of the ideas. But the business of bilateral relations with uh, China goes on every day. And I think there are examples that any Australian diplomat could uh, point to month by month and year by year. So Australia, like many other countries, has a foreign policy very much directed by our national agenda. And we've seen recent interactions with Asia where it seems like we're only in it for the money. So would you agree with this assessment? And is it a, a smart way to approach things when dealing with foreign policy? I think all our relations with every country in the world, not just uh, Asia, uh, involve a mixture of interests and values. It's very hard sometimes to distinguish an interest uh, from a value. Foreign policy isn't humanitarian policy. It's, uh, it's a whole combination of uh, different things. Those, uh, those interests are defined from time to time uh, by the government. And in a democracy, they're then judged by the voters in uh, elections. But interests, it's a very slippery concept because in any relationship, particularly ones with our neighbours, we have a whole variety of, uh, of uh, different interests uh, at stake and we need to balance them. So it's not simply a matter of pressing as hard as you can for the immediate benefits to you. It's also about thinking about uh, how to construct broader relationships, both bilaterally and with the region, mm. which over time will shape the sort of region that we uh, will find it most conducive to live in. I'm, I'm interested in, in what you think. Uh, is, is foreign policy something that you can put a lot of planning into? Because it seems to be a kind of reactionary thing that you develop. You know, something happens, you need to put something in place to deal with what has happened. Is it something that you can put a lot of planning into? Or is there a certain amount of guesswork involved? You can... Uh plan, but you always have to be ready to turn and adjust and so on. I mean, foreign policy is the way in which we deal with the almost incomprehensibly complex issue of the international agenda, where everything is happening at the uh, same time. You've got sort of human actions. Mm -hmm. uh, Donald Trump is a, a, an e example of that. You've got long-term economic and uh, and strategic trends and all the time you're trying to maximize the room in the world in which you can act and in which you can as i said before advance your interests and the and the values you believe in so it will always be reactionary but it can't be simply uh, reactionary you've also got to have a destination point in mind but be ready to turn and weave and duck and adjust and go backwards and forwards as you make your way across the sort of messy contingent swamp of the international environment. In 2016, Julie Bishop announced the development of a foreign policy white paper, the, the first such in 13 years. What do you think needs to be addressed in such a document? I think it's extremely hard to do foreign policy white papers for all the reasons we've been talking about. White papers are designed to set out uh, the government's uh, policies uh, for a, a period ahead and to engage the public uh, in debate. The problem 
with a foreign policy white paper, however, is that it's um, always going to depend on events which are unpredictable. If we'd had a foreign policy white paper in June 2016, there would have been no mention of the Trump administration, which will preoccupy Australian governments mm. uh, for the next uh, four years at least. We've had one example of that already when the 1997 white paper that the incoming Howard government put out failed to predict, understandably enough, the Asian financial crisis, which, uh, which emerged soon after. So how you pitch a white paper at a level which is not so general as to be bland or so specific as to be unbelievable is very hard. I think that it needs to address certain principles, certain ways of doing foreign policy, and in my view anyway, it ought to, as the defence white papers do, also address the capabilities we have for uh, pursuing our objectives in the world. Now, whether the government will want to get into capability building uh, at this time, I don't know, but uh, that was would be the way I would be going, I think. So Paul Keating recently voiced his concerns at how Australia is approaching foreign policy and the relationship with the United States, particularly given the impending Trump presidency. Do you believe Australia should be dealing with the US differently? I think Australia has to deal with the US differently because we've got a very different uh, US under the Trump administration, as we've seen even in this sort of interim period before he takes office, the uncertainties about the approach that the new administration will take are very great. And in a number of areas, I think both interests and values are going to be tested. We've always said that the alliance with the United States uh, rests on a coincidence of interests and mm. uh, values. Well, there are clearly some areas, for example, the um, open uh, international trading system where Australia's interests and the US will differ from what we've been used to from, from the Americans and even on, uh, on values and issues like uh, the global environment and climate change there are new uncertainties so we've got to be much more alert to looking after our interests and values in this uh, environment but the uncertainties at this stage are greater than I can remember at any period, certainly in my professional life with an incoming US administration. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think the whole world is really trying to come to grips with that uncertainty at the moment and waiting to see what rabbit Trump pulls out of his hat, really. Well, I think one of the problems for us is that no part of the, the US establishment pollsters Wall Street uh, mainstream media, no part was more damaged by the Trump victory than the foreign policy establishment, mm. uh, which had almost to a person, Republicans as well as Democrats, opted for another outcome. And that means that we're, Australia is dealing uh, now with uh, great uncertainty, not only with um, policy, but also with personnel. You can usually depend on knowing who the incoming people in a new administration will be. They've been occupying offices in uh, think tanks around uh, Washington, but so many people this time ruled themselves out. 
That's Alan Gingell, and he has a new book out in April 2017 called Fear of Abandonment, Australia and the World Since 1942, and it's published by Latrobe Press. You've been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on both iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.